It wasn't so long ago that I was giving a tour of Peachtree Christian Church. And I go up and down stairwells and passageways that most of you don't traverse. And the person said, boy, this place is like a maze. And I said, oh yeah, I could totally home alone some villains in this place. If you don't know what I mean, in the 1990s, there was a movie, Christmas movie called Home Alone, where Kevin McAllister lives in a ginormous, wealthy home in the suburbs of Chicago. By the way, I used to live one neighborhood over from it when I was an intern in a Chicago church. And his parents, his whole family flies off to Paris for the holiday. Meanwhile, there's some robbers, thieves, going casing neighborhoods for all the good stuff. And he gets wind of it as he's home alone, and he begins to prepare his home for the bad guys. He sets up booby traps everywhere, and it's basically slapstick humor with a lot of physical assault done to the bad guys, stuff that would actually kill you. <laughs> and it's now a Hollywood Christmas time classic. It reminds me when I was a kid. I'd play in the yard, and I'd actually fantasize about some robbers, some thieves, some bad guys coming in and trying to take something from our home. And I'd set up booby traps. For some reason, it seemed like a really cool thing for me to uh, tackle some unwitting villains with my booby traps. A couple weeks ago, you guys know I was in Illinois. The last night of my vacation, all the neighbor men sent me texts with pictures from the Ring doorbell app goes around the neighborhood. The neighborhood behind me had some robbers breaking into homes. Turns out, I'm told, that all of these guys were parking on the dead end next to our house. They were using the trail at the end of our driveway to go into the woods to get into the neighborhood behind us. People were alarmed. We got back from Illinois. I did everything I could, locked doors, I checked the house, no one had been inside. I closed curtains so no one could peer inside. I locked windows. And that night, the house behind us, the spec house that's being built, I call it Trump Tower because it's so tall. It towers over my house, this multi-million dollar spec house. All the lights were shining like a Christmas tree. Every window was wide open, and all the lights were on, all the floodlights were on. It made my bedroom look like daylight, twilight, I guess, at 2 a.m. in the morning. I had words with that builder this past week. Two days before the storm started coming through, I was awoken in my sleep at about 3 a.m., both days, both nights, to the sounds of footsteps in my yard, the sounds of people talking, and flashlights shining into my window. I didn't want villains to come to my house anymore. The flights of fancy of my youth had gone away. Now I was afraid. I heard tires squeal down the road as they peeled out from the dead end. So I readied myself. I didn't just lock the doors. I went and bought one of those motion-sensing lights, installed it, had it installed. I'm not that handy. It's got a camera, goes to your cell phone. I talked to the police. 
started practicing my kung fu moves. Put weapons all through the house. Baseball bats and golf clubs are everywhere. Okay, that part's a joke. When that kind of thing comes near you, you start making plans just in case. Jesus, in our passage this morning, tells his disciples that they need to have a general sense of readiness about themselves at all times. Why? Because there's going to come a time, Jesus says to them, when he will be coming back again. Now that's confusing because he has yet to die. So I wonder how the disciples take it in that moment to hear that he's coming back. Where are you going? Might be the first question. I don't know how it all went down. But the way that Luke tells the story is he tells them that you have to be ready because I will come again. A lot of times when we read this language in the Bible, we start going to places that our culture has gone with it. We start thinking about end times literature and films, and maybe we've heard sermons about the so-called end time. You probably heard it a time or two, someone talking about, there are signs that help you understand when these times will be. The signs of the times. Theology is big business. It's not good business, but it's big business. I'm thinking of the late 90s and early aughts, that book series that came out called Left Behind, it was a whole novelized portrait of a certain theological understanding of the end of days. What's interesting is, for most of Christian history, the theories put forward in that book and that you hear about mostly on TV, it didn't exist. It's a really new concept, the way they play it all out. It's modernistic. By the way, I don't think that when we read Revelation or Daniel or Ezekiel, we're reading about the end of times. I think we're reading about the end of one age and the beginning of another time of the kingdom. But we can talk about that another time. When I was in college, I had rabbit ear antenna on my TV. Y'all remember those? Got me about three channels. And I was in college prepared to be a minister. And so I would flip through the channels with my roommates and we'd stop on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN. You ever see it? It's an entire network composed of what I would consider fundamentalist Christian thought. And one of the pitfalls of being a young seminarian or a young person preparing for ministry is that you think you know everything and you're also not shy with your opinions. So we like to rag on the shows. We thought it was good sport to talk bad and be judgmental and sit there and pick on the stuff that we would see. Now, I'm not telling you I agree any more now than I used to, but I don't know that that was a good attitude. Just confessional, it was the attitude that I had. One day, we're flipping through the channels together. We see this preacher. He's got thousands of people in a sanctuary. He's got a world map behind him larger than this whole chancel and a timeline of human history, an odd timeline of events, I might add. And he's tying things in from this timeline to the book of Revelation. Finding it happening and unfolding in human history, saying, see, see, Revelation says this, and this happened. This happened when the Berlin Wall fell, or this happened when Kennedy was assassinated. And he started assigning all these things as if he had concrete, irrefutable 
truth of it all. People in the congregation are just eating this up. Why? I think it's because when you can think about things like that, it makes you feel like you have some semblance of control. People out there everywhere in our world read the apocalyptic genre. That's the genre of Revelation and parts of Daniel. They read it with a literalistic sense. Here's the problem with that, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again right from this pulpit. The apocalyptic genre is not very common today, so we don't always know how to read it. But you and I, we actually have tools for each genre where we read, and we don't really think about how we go about reading texts when we read them. We just have this almost some of unconscious approach. You read a box score, and you're thinking about analytics and numbers, but if your wife or your husband sent you a love letter, you would change the way you read it immediately. There's the language of love and metaphor. When you'd read a poem, you would, you would think about it differently than you would read a, a, a true crime book. And you just shift into your different methods of interpreting things. The closest thing we have, well, let me tell you what the apocalyptic genre is like. Apocalypse, revelation, it means to reveal. When you read it, it's politically charged, it's heavily symbolic, and it reveals slowly some deeper truth through symbols and metaphors. It's like if I'm pulling the sleeve back on my shirt, little by little, that's what the apocalyptic genre does. The book of Revelation for instance, says to people who are persecuted for their faith, 17 times it says this Greek word, nikao, which is the ancient word for Nike. You've ever heard of Nike? It means to overcome. It's talking to people who have been beat down for their faith. Nikao, you will overcome, you will overcome, you will overcome. Famines, wars, rumors of wars, pain, all kinds of pressures, you will overcome. The lamb who was beaten and bloodied and killed, Nikao, he overcame. He became the lion riding in on a white steed. Oh, it means so much more than about some end. It's supposed to give hope. The closest thing, in my opinion, that we have to the apocalyptic genre in our culture is Don McLean's American Pie. Bye-bye, Miss America Pie. Rode, drove a Chevy to the levee and the levee was dry. Good old boys drinking whiskey and rice singing, this will be the day that I die. And I ask you, and I've asked from this pulpit, is the song about good old boys? Is it about Chevys and Levies? Is it about pie? There should be songs about pie, but this isn't one of them. Is it about whiskey and rye? There are lots of songs about whiskey. I listened to country music the other day. I couldn't believe how many songs were devoted to whiskey. This isn't one of them. What's the song about? Well, purportedly, Don McLean wrote this song, inspired as he was when he was a, was a kid, delivering papers, and on the front of the paper it said, uh, Big Bopper, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. Is it about their death? No. It uses all these images of Americana and growing old up in this world to talk about a breaking of the age of innocence, of something lost in the past, growing older, a change of awareness. 
works, how revelation works, yet people read it so literally all the time that I actually heard a Sunday school teacher point out that whenever the book of Revelation said the color red, it was referring to communists, and then she sat there and told our class, be wary of the mark of the beast. She always worried about this mark of the beast business. Kroger came out with the Kroger card. You ever go to Kroger, you get a Kroger card, gives you some discounts. It always helps with gas prices. I'm not selling Kroger, I'm just telling you why I use it. Well, we got a Kroger card, big deal. She warned my parents, be careful. They got your mess information, it's the mark of the beast. Really? Kroger card is a sign of Satan? Thought you'd laugh about that. <laughs> now, people either buy into all this, or people are strangely curious about it, or people dismiss it all as wacky. I don't want to call anyone wacky, but I don't think that's the way to interpret the scriptures or that piece of our theology. But I will say that people have been predicting the end of the world for more than a millennium. It wasn't long ago. It was 1976 when Pat Robertson on the 700 Club wore his powder blue suit and donned the airwaves behind his desk and said that the world will end in 1982. I don't know if you noticed that, this, but we're still alive. It's 2022. It did not happen. Marshall Applewhite founded a cult group based on some Christian tradition, and he convinced a whole bunch of followers to commit mass suicide so they could catch a ride in a spaceship behind Hale-Bopp Comet in 1997 when the world was supposed to end. Not only did it not end, People lost their lives and people lost their loved ones. People have been doing this forever. In fact, there's a funny little thing you can do today. Just go ahead and have, have a little fun with this. I was curious about end times predictions that were wrong because, by the way, they, they've all been wrong. You Google that and a Wikipedia page comes up and there are countless people that you know, people that you haven't heard of predicting the end, knowing when it's going to happen. But church, can I tell you, no one knows. Nobody knows. Don't let anybody sell you on something like that. Nobody knows. And I have it on good authority, better authority than you got it on. You can't know. What's my authority? Jesus. Boom, Trump you. I just dropped Jesus on you. Jesus says Jesus doesn't know, and no one can know. So why do we listen to people or get ourselves worked up thinking that we're going to figure that out? You don't know, you can't know, you won't know. It just sells well, though, doesn't it? It sells well to those who want to believe it. But no one, no, not no one, really knows. Here's the scoop, and I'm going to tell you. Contrary to what some folks say, this is not the worst time in human history. 
we often say things like that, especially the past two years when things were going sideways. We didn't just have a pandemic. We had a whole host of stuff that's made everyone just lose their mind. This whole world seems to have gone crazy, in my opinion. It's still kind of crazy. And so people talk about the good old days. There was no such thing as the good old days. That's romanticization. This is not the worst time in human history. Why do I know that? Because we have health care. We have medicine. And by God, we've got air conditioning. And let me tell you this. Well, some places have air conditioning. Let me tell you this. There's a lot of bad stuff out in our world. A lot of injustices. A lot of things wrong. I ain't denying any of it. But it's not the worst time in human history. We can't go, this is the worst time, therefore, Jesus is going to come back. That doesn't work that way, friend. Let me tell you something else. There have always been signs of disaster and disruption. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's less now than there used to be. There's always been famines. There's always been pandemics. There's always been drought. There's always been problems. There have always been problems. This isn't new. And corruption has always abounded. Ever since there was such a thing called a politician, they have lied and they will keep lying. They will philander and keep philandering. I'm not saying everyone's in the same boat, but I'm telling you corruption will happen because we're people and we mess things up. That's the truth of the world and I'm here to tell you. Yet, the world as far as I can tell, has kept on turning. As sure as God has graced me with it, I woke up this morning. Did you? And I got to put my feet on the ground and breathe air again. So why does Jesus speak of being ready? First thing he says in the passage is, do not be afraid. It's my favorite part of it. Because I get afraid about a lot of things. I worry too much. You ever worry? Don't be afraid. Instead, he says, sell what you have and give it away. Be a person of charity. And charity is not about handing down to someone who's below you. The word charity comes from this Latin word caritas, which means love. It is love. Be people of generous love. Give yourself away. Then he gives this nice bit to explain what he's saying. He says, look, it, if there's a master who has a servant and the master goes to a wedding banquet and he comes back and he finds his servant doing the master's business, it's a good thing for the servant. In fact, that master is going to dress the servant up in his own clothes and sit him at his place at the table and become the servant to his own servant. Here's another way of putting it. Jesus tells us, tells his disciples, I am going to come back someday, and when I come back, what do you want me to catch you doing? Do you want to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar? Do you want to be caught hiding under a table afraid? Do you want to be caught doing something terrible? Or do you want to be found doing my work, being about my kingdom? can't tell you when Jesus is coming back as a tenant of my faith that he will come back. But here's one thing I know biologically, you're going to die. So am I. And we don't know when that's going to happen either. So how do you want to be found in that moment? 
Do you want to be found being a fool? Or do you want to be found lightening the burden of another? Do you want to be discovered by your Savior? Bringing justice to where there is no justice. Bringing peace to where there is chaos. Mending fences. Healing the broken. Do you want to be found working to care for creation in our environment? Do you want to be found feeding the homeless? Do you want to be found healing those who are sick and providing health care? Do you want to be found... Do you want to be found protesting an abortion clinic or do you want to be found adopting children? Do you want to be found doing the work or just spouting off about the work? Jesus says, be ready doing the work. That's how I want to find you. You get this one chance to live, friends. Use it and use it well. I was a kid and uh, every day we had to do chores. We had a great Pyrenees, this was a big white dog, and they shed clumps of hair, and so we had to vacuum every day. I did that before school, and then my dad put glass tops on top of our end tables, and we didn't use coasters. Us kids didn't, because we were undisciplined about it. And so they had rings, so we had to Windex every morning, too. I had to do all these different chores, clean up the dog mess out in the backyard, that whole stuff, right? So in the summertime, we were supposed to do it all in the morning while my parents both went to work. But me and my siblings, we get together. So let's just not do it. Just do it right before they get home. They get home around 3.30. It's like 3.15. And I'm like, come on, guys, let's go. Let's hurry up. Let's get this thing done. And, and I start vacuuming. But I'm not, like, really doing a great job vacuuming. I'm running around the house with a vacuum like this. You're not really getting everywhere. You're just running through. And you're kind of vacuuming one little lane through it all. That is to say we did a shoddy job. And mom and dad come home. And they know. They're not dumb. They know what we're up to. Jesus already knows what you're up to. In the sixth grade, I had a teacher named Miss Lutz. She was the best teacher I had in grade school. For whatever reason, she got called down to the office for something. She was gone for an inordinate period of time, and we were just left there. So we started messing about. We started drawing pictures on the chalkboard, we started writing dirty words on the chalkboard, or what we thought were dirty words, and we thought we were so clever. We were turning our desks around, we are crumpling up paper and throwing it across the room at each other, and it just got, it just got worse and worse. The mimetic desire was crazy. People just, kept, just made it worse and worse, and just chaos was ensuing, and some kid sticks his head out the door and goes, Miss Lutz is coming, clean it up. Okay, firstly, Miss Lutz knew what was going on because some stupid sixth six, six, grade six kid sticks his head out the window and stares at her, you know, and hollers her name. So he, she knew what was going on. She could hear it. It was chaos. But we all think we're going to be cool and clean it up before she gets there, right? We're erasing the whiteboard, chalkboard. We're moving our desk back. And this kid named Kevin, he was slow on the draw. And he can't get his desk turned around. And he just plops down in his chair and his desk is facing the wrong direction. It's the only one in the classroom facing that way. Teacher comes in and goes, Kevin? And he goes, what? <laughs> How do you want to be found when Jesus comes again? How do you want to be found if this moment is the last moment of your life? I hope that you will be found doing the kingdom work about your master's business. I'll say nothing else. I'll let you decide.